Yes, sir. You're back with iGosian Airwaves, and we are back with Nick Watts. So this is episode 16 of iGosian Airwaves, and we're talking to Nick Watts, pastor in the Lubbock area, about depression. And you, you need to hear his story. I'm not going to tell his story. It's his story to tell, but you need to hear it as it comes out because his story informs all of the wisdom and the expertise that he's gained in this area uh, related to depression and students, really depression in anyone. So we usually have a lot of fun on our podcast and do some fun stuff alongside our topic of the day. We did that and separated it into the last episode. So if you haven't listen to episode 15. Love for you to go back and get that because you get to kind of get to know Nick and hear the lighter side of things. But in this episode, we just jump right in. We're just talking about depression and how, how you can recognize it and all the things. And man, Nick's advice, his wisdom, his, his expertise here is so, so helpful as we minister to students. And if you're a student listening, you're struggling with this. This is going to be really helpful for you as well. So we're going to jump into this one, and then the next episode, episode 17, Nick's going to talk specifically about suicide and how it connects to depression and how we can how, how we can watch for those things and help people as well. So great, great content. So thankful for Nick stopping by to do this and taking the time and, and, and all the research. Let's, let's jump into it. Episode 16 with Nick Watts right now. All right, so thank you for doing the rapid fire. Thank you for that. That was that was good, man. Like the 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 trails we could continue to follow on that. I know that's good stuff. But our audience is here for that. But they're here also to be helped. They're here for um, the real topic of discussion today. And and like I said earlier, this is a two part podcast. So we're gonna we're gonna do this in two parts because we're, we're talking about depression in this part, and then we're going to shift and talk about suicide. And man, like I said, I, I know this is important. It's, it's always been more important than we probably have talked about. But in this last year and the COVID and all the stuff that that's happened, it just feels like it's even more important. And it feels like one of those things that you don't necessarily learn about in seminary, you don't learn about from uh, normal ministry experience until it's right in front of you. And then there's lots of guys, youth ministers, parents, and even students that are listening to this that are struggling or know somebody that's struggling and they don't know exactly how to help. And so Nick, I, I, uh, I wanted you to come help us. I know, I know you're not a medical doctor. Well, I mean, I I'm just assuming cause you have a lot of talents and maybe, maybe that's one of them, but I, I don't think that's behind your name, medical doctor or clinical psychiatrist or whatever, but like, what tell us tell us like how you got involved in helping and speaking on this and how god has opened these doors like you're you have a personal story obviously yes uh, connected to this these topics so why don't you just give us that 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 background sure lance uh really depression has um run in my family for many years my dad you know i saw him as a child but looking back now no doubt he suffer from depression. He self-medicated with alcohol and um, uh, became a severe and violent alcoholic. I grew up in a very, very violent home. And uh, 
alcohol. Uh, he died of alcoholism about 21 years ago. Then I have two sisters, middle sister and my younger sister. Uh, my youngest sister um, uh, was very depressed as a child. We looked, I just talked to my middle sister, Susan, the other day. And because I'd come across some, some childhood pictures and I said, my, our youngest sister, I said, Cindy looks so sad in all these pictures. Mm -hmm. And I, and we think that it was in large part due to the home in which we grew up. But also I think that she probably became severely depressed in, in her early age. And then she later self-medicated with, uh, with hard drugs and, uh, that killed her, uh, five years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, then you get to my immediate family. <clears throat> and I think it was in 1999 uh, that I no longer could function. And I was youth pastor at a different church uh, here in Lubbock. And I remember two, two men who came up to me and said, Nick, are you okay? And then I actually had a youth worker, a lady come up. She said, I'm very worried about you, but I had no experience, no personal experience. I, I knew I didn't feel right. right. I knew I couldn't function. I knew I had this brain fog I, and it was scary because I, you know, I typically in a, am upbeat uh, for the most part, but I'd lost my sense of humor. Everything became hard and I couldn't really articulate what was wrong. And so I went to our primary physician. He asked me some questions, says, Nick, you are clinically depressed. Hmm. And uh, I was very embarrassed. Um, just because I had no understanding of it at the time. And I said, I can't, I, I can't be. Uh, in fact, I'm going to address this at the end of our, um, our time here. I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I can't be depressed. Uh, I, I feel so ashamed. He, he said two things. Um, number one, he said, Nick, number one, you wouldn't believe how many pastors I treat for this. Hmm. And then number two, he said, Nick, this is a legitimate um, uh, diagnosis. It is a legitimate malady recorded right. in all medical journals. Um, you know, I, I, we use the pejorative phrase mental illness, which people who have never suffered from depression just associate with, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But he said, if someone comes in here and uh, they have strep throat, I don't tell them to read their Bible more. If they come in with a, a thyroid condition, I don't tell them to pray more. He said, Nick, God has granted us medication for this malady. Your, your brain is breaking. Uh, it's misfiring the neurons, the synapse. He said, it's okay. Um, hmm. This is like any other illness that requires medication. And so he made me, he made me feel a lot better. And, and given my childhood and growing up, I, it makes total sense yeah. uh, that I fell into this. So um, personally, I have um, <clears throat> been taking medication now for well over 20 years. Um, but the most dramatic um, representation of depression in our home, and I know we'll talk about this more next week, uh, is depression uh, is the mental condition most associated with suicide. And when I do my talks in schools and churches, um, I cover a section in depression or over depression because of this fact. 
my middle son, I have a daughter, Kelsey, a son, Jordan, and then a daughter, Macy. And our son suffered. He he was creative. He was an artist. And mm -hmm. if you're familiar with uh, the suicide of Robin Williams, um, listen, these creative people um, have a propensity for clinical depression. Mm. Um, I, I can't explain why I've read material on it, uh, but there is a common denominator. And Jordan was a sculptor, a musician. I think he played about eight instruments. Uh, he was uh, a, 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 an artist. He had uh, two or three paintings uh, that won awards displayed in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Anyway, he was just that kind of dude. Uh, he had dreads. Uh, he slept in a hammock in his bedroom. <laughs> he went on Amazon and bought the old school, the clapper, and you could hear him uh, clapping <laughs> his lights on and off. Yeah, he was just yeah. a, he was just a hippie. Anyway, he felt deeply. Um, he was like that, um, personality trait of the golden retriever. He absorbed the emotions of everyone around him. And as a result, everyone loved him, but he suffered from severe depression. And, uh, early in the month of May in 2013, he said, dad, I feel like I'm slipping. That was our code word for when we felt like something wasn't working, maybe our medication needed to be adjusted, um, dealt with somehow. Anyway, uh, Michelle and I did exactly what we knew to do. We got him to the doctor, we got him to the counselor, and he was doing better. Hmm. But then on May 13th of 2013, and I'll tell this more next week, um, he lost his battle with depression and, uh, and he took his life. And so since that time, uh, my wife and I have read voraciously volumes of material on the topic of depression and its relation to suicide. And I've never once, Lance, uh, created a brochure or a website to uh, go speak or talk on this topic. Um, but apparently God had that in mind because I, I've lost count of how many times I've been asked and invited to come speak on those topics. And, uh, this is one of those times. So that's my personal history with depression. Nick, I'm, I mean, obviously very sorry for that loss and you guys had to walk through that, still walking through that. Very sorry about that. I, I've, I've seen that I've, you know, like, I don't know how to describe this. It's been so amazing to see how open, honest, authentic you've been throughout all of that. And I, I would imagine that through all those speaking engagements and, and opportunities that God has shown you how he's been using that and even in some ways redeeming that, but I would imagine that there's countless ways you'll never know until heaven about how God has used just your transparency in it. And that, that's why I knew that if I reached out to you, there's a chance you're going to say yes, because it's like you walk through this unbelievable tragedy. And even while I'm sure you're still grieving and still in the middle of it, God is using it. And, and he's doing that through you. And I, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that you were willing to be obedient when probably nothing, you probably didn't want to be obedient. You know, it's one of those times when you just did and you still are. So thank you. Thank you for, for coming on and, and sharing your story. 
Lance, it's my pleasure. And let me add this. Um, uh, I didn't want to be obedient. And I, I have to mention my wife here. She, boy, she was the rock. I, since I found my son, um, I, I was completely incapacitated for a long, long while. The shock for me lasted eight months. <clears throat> and I know that because I woke up one day and something was different. Hmm. And after visiting with people, I realized that was the first day I woke up without trying to undo Jordan's death. Hmm. It's exhausting. Every minute of every, every waking minute of every day, you're, I now know how an otherwise sane person can go insane. It is a slow burn. Hmm. <clears throat> and uh, after two years, I did end up in the psychiatric ward, one of our local hospitals. And I'll talk more about that next week. But um, it is Michelle who I, I was stuck. I couldn't pull out of it. I did not. I didn't want to pull out of it. Um, uh, depression had become a familiar friend, if yeah. that makes any sense. But it was killing me. And I don't know if you're familiar with the old Rocky movies, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Rocky would always be dealing with some big issue, fear or something. <clears throat> the death of his trainer, Mickey, <laughs> or whatever right. it was. Right. And about midway through the movie, here comes Adrian and she just lets him have it, gets in his face and it's out of love. You know, she's earned that. But one day Michelle came to me and I mean, got in my face and gave me that Adrian to Rocky. Hmm talk. And all I remember her saying is you are choosing to live in despair. It's killing you and it's killing all of us. Hmm. And that was sort of, sort of the pivot cord. It was that moment, that moment of truth where it woke me up and I realized I got to get some help and I, I, cause I'm not gonna be able to pull out of this on my own. And really that's what this talks about is depression is real. It needs to be validated and um, uh, you, you're not going to be able to pull out of it on your own. You need help. And to all those who have never been uh, in that position of dealing with depression, thank God for you because uh, we need you. Yeah. Yeah. It is real. And uh, that, that I'm sure that theme will continue to develop because I want us to help people really understand that when, when you don't, you haven't experienced it, it's very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to have, like, we need, you say you need people that haven't been depressed. We need you guys to help us understand it because we don't, we don't otherwise, unless you're honest, like you have been. So why don't you tell us, like, when I say depression, that word right there, just like there's so many different ways that that can be interpreted or understood or misunderstood or whatever. So you got like, there's different kinds of depression, obviously, some working definitions. What, what, what can you do, share that would help us understand what we're talking about? That's a great question, Lance. And I always make sure the kids understand this. Well, and adults when I do my talks, but there are two types. There's situational depression, which we all have. Mm -hmm. You got dumped by your boyfriend or girlfriend. You didn't get into the college you wanted to get into. You got in trouble. Your parents have taken your phone and your car keys. You know, um, <laughs> you have a, you know, if you're an adult, uh, you get scolded at work or, or whatever. Yeah. But we're very down. We feel like a failure. We're uh, brokenhearted. Feelings are hurt. We're depressed. But this is temporary. Um, it's based on a. Uh, it's connected to a specific situation, and you know, day or two, you're you're over it. So that's called 
situational oppression, the, the basic blues or the blahs, you're in a funk. But then there's another thing called clinical depression that is uh, termed more um, professionally as the major depressive disorder. And I want to quote Dr. Dan Blazer. From, he's the professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University Medical Center. He defines it this way, emotionally and psychologically crippling, hmm. debilitating, incapacitating. In short, it is painful. And he rightly says, it is a form of suffering. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, published an article a couple of years ago. And uh, the author, Elizabeth Bernstein, she included this. She said, the diagnosis for depression is the same for teens as it is for adults. Psychiatrists and healthcare professionals define major depressive disorder as five or more of the following symptoms present for two weeks. A depressed mood most of the day, irritability, decreased interest or pleasure in most activities. Uh, it could indicate weight change. I know when I was severely depressed, I quit eating. Uh, your sleep habits uh, begin to change. Typically you sleep more because you just want to uh, go to sleep and never wake up. Um, increased agitation, fatigue, loss of energy, feelings of guilt or worthlessness. And of course, recurring thoughts of death. Um, hopelessness, of course, is the stepping off point uh, to suicide or suicide ideation. 17th century uh, scholar Richard Burton said, if there's a hell on earth, it is to be found in a depressed heart. There were two great, great statements. I read an article one time uh, of various people describing their depression. I wrote down two of those statements. One person said, I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body hasn't found out yet. Wow. Another person said, it's like drowning, except you can see everyone around you breathing. And then I have a graphic. Uh, I'm going to send this to you. Maybe you can uh, somehow uh, put it on your um, uh, podcast. It, I, I show this graphic. It's perfect when I do my talks. At the top, it says, when you suffer depression, I can show you kind of just what it looks like. It has two silhouettes. Yeah. And so when you suffer depression, uh, the one on the left is what people think I feel. And his whole body is blue and it just says sadness. And so those who aren't familiar with it, it's like, man, why are you sad? Right. And then on the other side, it says what I actually feel. And all the way down to the waist, it just says nothing. I'm sorry, mate. It's me. <clears throat> it's just because I've been there. Yeah. You don't feel anything. And under that, it has self-loathing guilt and isolation it is it is far more than just sadness it just like blazer said it is incapacitating and crippling so that's the difference between the two depressions that's so that's so helpful because that's you haven't experienced it that's what you think the word depression makes you think of sadness and it's so much deeper than that it's not it's not it's probably not the best word right it's it's so much deeper 
Yeah, that's, that's good. We will definitely use that. We'll attach that to the social media links to this podcast. And we have a, I'll send that to you. We, we have a webpage, part of our webpage talks about our podcast. We can include it good. there in the notes. So that that's, good. that's really, really helpful. Um, I know what you're going to say to this. It's not, this is a question. It's just, I feel like it's one of those things we need to say it out loud. Just everybody on the same page. How big is this problem among, among teens and parents today? The, the problem of depression, how big is it? It's at epidemic levels. Um, right after uh, my son took his life, 2013, you know, used to Lance and all the youth pastors listening will know this. Unless a, uh, a kid at one of the local schools took their life or a celebrity took their life, we never mentioned it. No. As a youth pastor, I never did. I don't remember ever teaching or talking about suicide outside of one of those uh, special circumstances. And even then, I I didn't understand it at all or what led up to it, the context, anything about clinical depression. But now what's happened, and I'll talk about this later, um, the uh, common denominator, it's now well in mainstream because used to that was sort of a taboo. You just didn't, you never saw it anywhere. In fact, it was kind of almost had a, um, uh, you know, shame attached to it. It wasn't mentioned in churches. Um, there's this, uh, we'll talk about this next week. There's this lie from Satan that, uh, suicide sends a person to hell. Um, and so, um, there was a shame attached to it, but now it is well into the mainstream. Newsweek ran a full page article, uh, uh, front page, um, back in 2013 called the suicide epidemic. Hmm. Why are we killing ourselves the next year, uh, in the New Yorker magazine, their headline was the neglected suicide epidemic. One thing they said was since 1999, more Americans have killed themselves each year than in the one before. Around the world, self-harm takes more lives than war, murder, and natural disasters combined. In 2016, New York Times uh, front page article, U.S. suicide rate surges to a 30-year high. I have a number of articles uh, closer to home. The Woodlands, just outside of Houston, Mm -hmm. wrestles with rise of suicide. That's from the Houston Chronicle. New York Post when Columbia University was hit with a wave of suicides. And then uh, Newsweek ran another article a few years later um, uh, specifying teen suicide. And their front page article was uh, teen suicide is contagious and the problem may be worse than we thought. Now here's the common denominator. I'll relate it here. Just a couple of years ago, uh, James Dobson, Focus on the Family, uh, he wrote a note that said, dear friends, the topic of my letter this month is one that strikes terror into the hearts of the nation's parents. It's a parent's worst nightmare. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. He said the suicide is, or I'm sorry, the issue is suicide among teens and young adults. He said, according to the new data from the National Center for Health Statistics, the suicide rate in the US hit a 40 year high among older teen girls in 2015. In the shorter term, the suicide rate for girls doubled between 2007 and 2015. Now, that year 2007 is significant, Lance, because that 
was the advent of the smartphone. Oh, wow. Girls, I have two girls. They yeah. are far more concerned with self-image than guys. Mm. Yep. Um, and so I don't think it is by accident that <clears throat> teen suicide, boys and girls, but teen girls in particular, skyrocketed among that demographic with the advent of the smartphone. Um, as they, you know, not everyone's built like the, the, the skinny model. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. few people are uh, the successful cheerleaders and typically on social media, more than often what you see are a person's best moments, right? You know, I won this award. I'm, I'm at this party. I, you know, uh, I'm looking good today, you know, those sorts of things. And deep down in all of us, you know, we have this, you know, times change, technology changes, but people never change. We all have a need to be loved, a desire to make a difference, a desire to be attractive, all those things. And so when you continually are bombarded with uh, images of people who at least appear on the outside to be prettier than you, more successful than you, doing better than you, it just over time, it's like a drip of water on a rock. It may not make a difference in the beginning, but over time, it'll wear a hole in it. Sure. Um, the Wall Street Journal um, also... Uh, a couple years ago, wrote an article called How to Spot Teenage Depression, and I'll address that later in one of your questions, but it said, in 2016, around 13% of U.S. teenagers aged 12 to 17 had at least one major depressive episode in the past year, compared to only 8% in 2006. Now, do you notice that year? Mm -hmm. One year prior to the advent yeah. of the smartphone. Um. They said rates for teenagers ages 18 and 19, which are tracked separately, grew as well. My son, Jordan, was 19. Uh, and so they said more than 11% had a major depressive episode in 2016, uh, compared to only 9 to 10% in 2006. And so when I give these talks, you know, I tell them those, uh, those broad headlines, you know, nationally. But then I always try to bring it back home. I did the, golly, not too long after my son took his life, I had a former youth who took his life. And so his mom called me. She was hysterical, said, would you preach his funeral? I said, of course I will. And so I did. Afterwards, I went out to um, uh, one of the employees of the funeral home. And I just asked them, I said, how often does this happen? How many of these funerals do you have here in Lubbock? I'll never forget what she told me. She said, we've had three this past week. It's not publicized. You don't see it in the obituary. Right. My right. child, my loved one, my parent took their life. It's, uh, you don't see that. And sometimes right. it's not even mentioned. Um, but I have never forgotten that. And I talked to a member of the Lubbock Police Department, one of the officers, not long after Jordan died. He's a dear friend of mine. And I said, how often does this happen? He said, Nick. It happens far more often than you think. So it is big. It's huge. It's real. It's out there. And we need to be aware of it. And this last year. I mean, oh, COVID. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, 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 it spiked again uh, because um, one of my licensed professional counselors that I see, he told me that uh, the term COVID depression is now a, an actual term. 
because people felt isolated. They lost jobs. They see members of their family hurting. Um, And so, yes, it has it has triggered everything has been exacerbated by this uh, COVID. Yeah. As we've talked to youth ministers, as we've talked to students, we, I mean, it makes sense. You would, you would kind of expect it, but just to bring it up on the radar, go like they're struggling and we can't see it maybe as well as we used to could see it because of all the isolation and, and, yes. and the isolation is causing them to struggle even more. It's a, it's a, it's a bad combination for sure. So you, speaking of seeing it, like you talked about, it felt like you gave us a list of maybe these five things that maybe if I was dealing with depression, I would start to understand about myself. But if, if you're a youth minister, if you're a parent, you're mm. a friend and you're trying to, trying to diagnose that or trying to, what, what, what are some things you can look for? What are some things you should take notice of common, common signs of somebody that might be struggling with depression? Yeah, sure. Lance. So um, what I'm going to read you are some common signs um, a, someone who may be suffering from depression or suicidal ideation, um, just because you have one of these signs doesn't mean that they're necessarily clinically depressed sure. or that they've ever considered harming themselves. For instance, uh, the first sign is someone who may say more than once, I just can't do this anymore. Um, well, my own daughter, Macy, and my youngest daughter, uh, one semester in college about midterm, you know, she called me and her mom and she said, man, this is killing me. I just can't do this anymore. Well, she wasn't suicidal or depressed, you know, it just, so that's my point. Um, but that may be one of the statements they say, I, you have to help them to find what does this mean when you say, I can't do this anymore. Another thing, let me jump in. Like, so you, so we don't want to overreact. Correct. But the problem, a big part of the problem is that most times we underreact, right? Like Yes, that, that is the default, is that yeah. we just really don't pay attention to it. You know what? We're in a hurry and sure. we don't understand. So we just kind of, you know, we look back down at our phones and uh, we may say, hey, man, if you if you need me, holler at me, man, I'm yeah. there. Right. Um, of course, someone who's clinically depressed, they can't they can't articulate how they feel. Right. Uh, they're unable to. In fact, that's, you know, some people have asked, why didn't your son just tell somebody? I said, man, he couldn't tell anybody. His brain was broken. Yep. I mean, the, everything's misfiring. And when you get to that point of actually stepping off the cliff into harming yourself, you have no more connection to the part of your brain that would provide logic. If our son, if my son, if your loved one who took their life um, knew the devastation that this would cause, they would have never done right. it. You know, I told you, uh, someone who says, I, I, we're about to say, I just want to sleep and not wake up. I have, I have no doubt that my son just wanted to go to sleep. Uh, but he could not connect his, his brain was misfiring. Hmm. He could not understand that he's not going to wake up and what that would do to the rest of us. Another statement that someone might make is I just want it all to stop. Another one is anything expressing one's desire to no longer live. I attended one workshop and they called these signs invitations. Hmm. And it's a, it's a paradigm shift. Um, 
and uh, you, you know, you've heard it sometimes of people who are, you know, they express different things or actions, maybe different words. They're not specifically asking for help, but their actions can be defined as crying out. Well, that's that's the imagery behind invitations. So moods may or may not include um, isolation mm-hmm. from family and friends. My own son isolated himself that last uh, 12 to 14 hours. It's just a loss of interest, withdrawal from activities, sleeping too much or too little, feeling like a burden to others. Hmm feeling trapped. And as I said, the last stepping off point is hopelessness. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's that feeling like a burden to others. I've heard people say, and I'm ashamed to admit that before 2013, I would downplay suicide. I think even once in my life, i I have described it as the cowardly way out. And I tell you, it, it, it em, embarrasses me to even say that now. These people who have taken their lives saw this as a very courageous thing to do hmm. in, in their broken mindset. Sure. Um, the reason they isolate themselves is because it's almost a, a romantic tragedy they had because their brain is misfiring that that's my best way to describe it people say what happened i'll i'll tell my son's brain was broken and that that helps in layman's terms to help them understand that really these folks die of a disease their brain was broken they weren't getting the medication and they succumbed to that disease they weren't and they and they would say what was he thinking and i'll tell them he was not thinking and um they they these people who um, descend into that darkness, it's almost as though they begin to write a script, um, a movie script of sorts. I am bringing my entire family down. Uh, They're always having to check on me. Uh, I'm making them afraid. Hmm. It would be better. I mean, you know, Jordan was having a hard time in school for obvious reasons now. It, you know, dad's having to pay for this class every semester. I just can't seem to pass it. I mean, you could just fill in the blank of how it applies to, to your loved one or to you. Probably what I need to do is in order to let them get on with their life is to remove myself. Hmm. And so, I mean, it's hard to talk about as you think about what, you know, goes on in their minds in those last, those last moments. So, feeling trapped, a burden to others. These are other invitations or warning signs. Um, I did want to add, there are some triggers for depression. Okay. Could be abuse. Now, one thing that helps me uh, not go down the rabbit hole of uh, rabbit hole of insanity with my own son's suicide is that, you know, I'm definitely not perfect. You know that, Lance. Mike Martindale and Ed Lowe all know that. <laughs> um, but he grew up in a somewhat stable Christian home. I mean, we're we're real, that's for sure. Um, we've had many of our unchristlike moments, but he grew up in a good home. Um, 
I grew up in a horrific home, hmm. tons of domestic violence, um, uh, hit by hit personally by my own dad, uh, saw horrible things. Cops were at her house. I never once thought of suicide ever. And so, uh, it could be abuse that triggers it. It probably had a lot to do with it as I was diagnosed, um, you know, in my early thirties, I don't know, but it could be yeah. trauma, obviously any kind. Oh man. If there's a history or somewhere within there, a sexual abuse, um, or a verbal abuse, emotional abuse, any kind of trauma, it could even be triggered, you know, just by the loss of a loved one that just kind of sent you over the edge. Sure. Prolonged relational stress. Now, this is huge. Uh, when I attended a workshop at Texas Tech, one of the mental health professionals got up there. She's a child psychologist. And she said, I cannot tell you how many children I counsel who believe, who truly believe they are responsible for their parents' divorce. And obviously, my parents divorced when I was going into 10th grade. I get that. Um, and so when I speak to kids, I'll have them all, even the ones who may be dozing off, you know, yeah, they're yeah. usually pretty locked into this topic, but I'll tell them all, I want you to look at me, everyone. I make sure everybody's heads up and looking at me and I'll tell them, I know at least half of you out there, um, your parents are divorced and I'll tell them you had nothing to do with it. And so these kids who That's can good. feel the burden of thinking that their parents no longer wanted to be married. It's huge. And then also, uh, humiliation. I'll, I'll, I'll speak more about this next week. Bullying and cyberbullying is enormous. And I'll also refer to the, uh, Netflix series, 13 reasons why yeah. next week. Uh, I wrote a blog on that. Uh, I, I do have a blog. It's nickwattsoulfood.com. And of course you can write into the, uh, the search engine there, either depression or suicide, and you'll come up with a, with a lot of, uh, different blogs to read. Really. I started blogging just for my own therapy. It just helped me to write. And, sure. um, I've started on a book, um, to, that will be for this very purpose tell a little bit of my story, but also answering all these questions, um, almost a, um, uh, a 911 resource for those who um, are in this situation. And I cannot tell you, Lance, how many calls and emails, Facebook messages that my wife and I have received since 2013, hmm. which helps us to know this thing is at epidemic levels. Yeah. People don't talk about it but everyone's dealing with it. And when I stand in front of those uh, assemblies, you know, six, 700 teenagers in these uh, auditoriums at these schools, and I'll just say, hey, just to let me know, how many of you have been connected in some way uh, to suicide, the loss of a friend or a loved one? Uh, probably 75% raised their hand. It's always the vast majority. So, Anyway, I'll talk more about the, the bullying and how that serves to be what I describe as the last poke in the chest of someone standing on the edge of a cliff. So those are some invitations, some signs, triggers. Very, so helpful. And we will we'll link to your blog and other resources as we sure. continue the discussion. We'll, we'll do all that to sure. point people because this is, this is going to be 
this is really, really good. And there's some depth to it for sure, but it's going to be a starter course for a lot of people. You know, they're going I hope to, have so. to continue to do that. And yeah, I hope so. You know, I, I was, I was at a church, um, doing a disciple now last weekend. Uh, I challenged the students at the, the very first night, like if you'll be honest this weekend, Jesus will meet you here. And you know, the idea, like you may never found a safer place than this youth group and this church setting. Yes. So I hope that as youth ministers are listening to this and even students, I hope that youth ministers will say, we need to bring this up. Even if you don't know how to deal with it right now, you need to bring it up so that students can have a place to be honest about these struggles. And I'm not expecting you to give us all the answers that to this question, Nick, but like if, a youth minister brings it up if there's a s- suspicion that there's kids that are struggling with this or one kid like how would you advise them to respond or begin the process of respond responding to someone that is struggling with depression you think they are they've said that they were um, all those different kinds of things man great question and most folks don't even know in, including youth pastors and that would uh, include me prior to 2013 sure. if, if i may let me just offer a couple of things not to say yeah. to someone who uh, suffers from severe depression. This is actually uh, given by Dr. Adam Kaplan, who's the associate professor in psychiatry and neurology at Johns Hopkins University. Okay. These are some things that he listed. Number one, I know how you feel. Now, I want to qualify this because this a comment like this may be made genuinely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and lovingly, but this is not what you say, uh, for two reasons. Number one, you don't know how they feel. Our brains are complex. We're all unique. And even if like myself, you suffer from uh, severe depression, clinical depression, their situation is unique to them, which leads me to the second reason you never say something like that. What it does when you say, I know how you feel, it takes the focus off of their story Hmm. onto yours. Hmm. I have sat with, um, you know, fortunately, after uh, Jordan took his life, I've never had anyone offer me some stupid cliche, feeling like they just have to say something. Right. This was a God, part of God's plan. I promise you, man, had they said that, the right hand of Christian fellowship probably would have ended up in their throat. Um, and so people don't need your cliches, keep your little sermons to yourself and take a lesson from Job's friends prior to the moment they opened their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Everything went downhill when they felt like they had to give answers. And of course they were all wrong. And if Job hadn't prayed for him, God would have killed him. But that first seven days, all they did, just sat with him in silence and they just yeah. heard. That's what I call the ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. So don't say, I know how you feel because you don't. And it takes the focus off of them and puts it on you. And I was going to mention after Jordan died, you know, I may have a, a person say, Hey man, I, I just want to take you for coffee. And all of a sudden they do, they go, man, I'm so sorry. I, I've sort of kind of been there. I, and they start telling their story. I've already checked out. I don't hear another word they say. Sure. I don't care. I, I'm I'm on the edge of the cliff and that's all. I can see off the precipice where I'm going and your story's not helping. Right. Next thing, and this is huge, 
suck it up, cheer up, get over it. If they could, they would. Right. You know, I mentioned that thing by Richard Burton earlier. If there's a hell on earth, it is seen in the depressed heart. I had one licensed professional counselor tell me, he said, Nick, for someone to look at someone suffering from depression and to tell them to suck it up or get over it, cheer up, it's equivalent to telling a double amputee to get up and walk. Hmm. We're incapable. And if we could, we would. No one in their right mind, of course, that's the operable term, wants to spend a moment more than they have to in this nightmare known as severe depression. The next thing, there are only four. The next thing is it's all in your head. Hmm. Well, that invalidates this person who is sincerely and genuinely ill. Um, if someone came up to me with a compound fracture and their uh, shin bone sticking out of their skin, I'm not going to look at them and go, <laughs> I'm sorry you're hurting, but it's really all in your head. Yeah. That's equivalent huh. to telling someone who is who has mental illness, um, their brain is broken. How invalidating that is to them. And all it does, pokes them in the chest and moves them closer to that precipice. And then this last thing is another thing people will say, meaning well, but it's a horrible thing to say. Just think, there are others who have it worse than you. Like number one, what this does, it takes the focus off of them and puts it on someone else's story. I agree. You know, I am not a Christian in an Arab Muslim country right, right. now. I don't, there are others who have it worse than us. I don't live in North Korea, you know, um, an oppressed, um, uh, an oppressed part of this world. However, for someone who's very close to taking their life, I don't know that anybody has it worse than them. Hmm. And also it just invalidates them and makes them feel more insignificant, more worthless than they did before you offered something like that in regard to how to respond. Oh man. Number one, just care. What I mean by that <laughs> is to be present. Let me give you an example. Um, one time I uh, came home from work one day, uh, just like many of you, I was busy. I didn't really need to go home at the time, but I felt like I needed to. Supper was probably almost ready. So I walk in, I'm on my phone. I think I was returning an email and my wife, Michelle uh, Macy was next to her. Something great had happened that day for Macy. And uh, she said, hey, Macy, there's dad. Hey, come on over here. Macy has something to tell you. So I do. I go, I'm standing right next to her. She starts telling me about her day. And I hear Michelle say, Macy, just stop. He's not listening. I was one foot away from her, but I wasn't present. Hmm. And um, sometimes we just need to put our phone down and just take inventory of those people around us. Yeah that we love. Maybe something's just a little off. We need to be careful to, to validate the way they feel. They may just be situationally depressed, but you know what? We could help them through that too. We need to Absolutely. understand that their brain is broken. 
that this phrase mental illness is is real hmm. we need to make sure that uh, if it is severe clinical that we notify their parents and you know I'll, I'll mention this next week as well someone that we suspect of harming themselves um we need to tell an adult immediately immediately yeah. uh run don't walk to the nearest adult and um I have told people before, I realize, I get it. Some teenagers have a horrible relationship with their parents. They haven't had any level of intimacy and way of conversation since that kid was six years old. However, I've always told this to kids. We adults are just old teenagers. That's all we are. Hmm. Um, we're still trying to figure this thing out called life. You know, it's become far more complicated. Mm. The kids don't come with instructions. I can't promise you if they did, if we would even read them. <laughs> but we have good days and bad days, horrible days, great days, and everything in between. We get depressed. We get discouraged. We get angry. So, you know, we're just like you, just farther on down the line. And sometimes we flat get it wrong. Mm. However, no one on the planet loves you more than you, your parents, yeah. no one. And so those kids who have a horrible relationship with their parents, what I tell them, or I tell their friends to tell them is look, I'll give you 24 hours to tell your parents at 24 hours, I'm calling them. And so, um, that may not be the best thing because that kid can also have 24 hours to go ahead and just end it. But if they're at that level, um, and we'll talk more about that next week. Well, that's when you call the parents immediately. Yeah. And you know what? They may be mad at you, but uh, you let them be mad at you. You know, I think about Paul in Galatians 4, 16, where he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Sometimes they'll love you later, though. And so were their parents. And I always tell them, look, if you don't tell their parents or a school counselor, a coach, a teacher, a youth pastor, if you don't let someone know and that kid takes their life and then their parents learn that you knew it's going to be a world of hurt for you. Yeah. The anger towards you, the guilt you'll feel forever. Right. So anyway, to be, uh, just aware of those things. Um, it's interesting. This I go back to this uh, article by the Wall Street Journal. It says a survey that they took found that almost 60% of teens with major depressive disorder didn't receive any kind of treatment. Um, parents don't always identify the problem or know what to do about it, even when they do. Hmm. And sometimes teens often resist any kind of treatment because of the stigma that it carries. Um, but I always tell parents and friends of those kids, always err on the side of caution. Always. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Unlike most adults, the article says, uh, people who want to help typically lack an awareness of the changes in that person's behavior. And that's because we're busy and our faces are stuck in our phones. So that's why I say every now and then, man, yeah. just take inventory. Just stop. See if there's anything off at all. And it may be nothing. 
at all. It may just, and it may just be that you're having a bad day. That's okay. At least, you know, but if it's something worse, also, at least, you know, the end of that article gives some specific steps I think would be helpful. Um, the wall street journal article, number one, be curious. In other words, be present. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask questions, man. Are you, are you doing okay? Um, why do you ask? Well, I just noticed that something was off, so forth, so on. And they'll be able to, if they're unresponsive, then you know it's worse because that means their brain is broken. They can't even articulate it. Hmm. Next thing, and I thought this was very good, ask others. It says, a child who is depressed will often have an impaired functioning in several areas of life. Before I was diagnosed with depression and was put on medication, the two people who talked to me were church members, but I was unable to function in every aspect of my life. So if you have a relationship, you might be able to talk to a teacher, Yeah, you know, or um, uh, a counselor at school or a coach, coach and say, Hey, or a parent and say, Hey, am I just seeing things? Have y'all seen any of this? So that's another practical step. Um, and then, um, medication, a physician, and a counselor. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, especially those who have a biblical worldview, um, medication can fix the brain, but only the Holy Spirit can renew the mind. And so when we're given the right medication, the right type, the right dosage, or the right combination of medication, mm-hmm. listen, when that brain starts firing on all cylinders again, I can speak from experience. All of a sudden, you can hear the birds singing, the sky's blue again. Your circumstances haven't changed. And so if it was triggered by something, um, uh, some event, that event is still there. But at least you can approach it now like everybody else on planet Earth who is mentally healthy. The um, counselor can help with cognitive behavior therapy. In other words, hey, now you can hear what I'm saying. Let me give you some practical steps on addressing these uh, areas in your life. And I'm going to tell any man out there who's listening, um, those guys out there who are going, uh, who are thinking uh, counseling is for weaklings. Hmm. Uh, It's an emotional crutch. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, Counseling is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of real strength. It takes a real man a real person to be able to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all together. I could probably use a little help. And that's what these counselors have gone to school for all their life. Right. And love it to be able to help people back away from the cliff and to see reality again. And really that's the thing I want to sum up with that part is that If you are suffering, there is hope and help in abundance, Hmm. and you will make it. I sat across from a depressed teenage girl just a few weeks ago, and I looked at her and said, you're going to make it. She said, do you promise? I said, yes. We're going to help you make it. I have been in that place where I've had to call my wife and say, i Will this ever stop? She said, yes, yes. And my physician has said, we're going to get you through this. So I want people to know there is hope. Hope can change a gray sky blue that quickly. Hope changes everything. 
So there is help and there is hope. I, I don't know if you were going to go there, but I do have some, uh, some biblical context uh, that may help youth pastors. Yeah, like I, I think that that'd be a good last question for this part is to like put yourself in that role. You're, you know, you were a youth minister, you, you still are involved with students. So if you're a youth minister, what would you do in this day and time that really helps students? And what, what does that look? How does the Bible speak into that? How do we, how do we, you know, that's where the source of wisdom comes from. So any, any just practical, like here, here's what you do as a youth minister, even, even just the, the idea of helping address it with some confidence. Yes. What would you say? Well, you know, we're going to address suicide next week. Um, but it's important people know there are seven suicides recorded in the Bible. Now, and I always couch that or qualify that with just because the Bible records something doesn't mean God approves it. Hmm. It's not God's will or his plan that we take our own life. However, the Bible is a record of life in its authenticity and his pursuit of mankind through our depravity and hurt and pain to redeem us. But seven times in there, man, it happens. Most people, they think of Judas, they're familiar with him. Sure. There are six others throughout the, they're threaded throughout the Old Testament. Speaking of the Old Testament, when I was going through a horrible, dark time, horribly dark time, uh, way back in 2003, um, I spent every morning in the Psalms. Hmm. Now, by this time, I had been in youth ministry, gosh, 83, 93, uh, 20 years. Um, you'd think that we all know these things, but we just don't. <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, you, read the, you can read the same passage of scripture 12 times and see 12 different truths in it that you might not have seen uh, the time before. But as I spent all that time in the Psalms, uh, of course, you know, there's Job, there's Lament. When people say, hey, can a Christian be depressed? I go, we have an entire book called Lamentations. Right. <laughs> you know, anyway, check this out, though. In Psalm 38, verses 9 through 11. One of the uh, phrases that David uses is, my heart pounds, my strength fails me, even the light has gone from my eyes. He is describing clearly an anxiety attack. Hmm. This is King David, a warrior poet, a man after God's own heart, wrote at least 73 of our Psalms. In Psalm 143, verses 3 and 4, the enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. And he finishes up. So my spirit grows faint within me and my heart within me is dismayed. Well, he's talking about a human enemy there, but that enemy could also be something psychological or emotional. And then this last passage, I mean, we know, as I mentioned, Job, lamentations. Isaiah wanted to die, just kill me. Mm -hmm. Even Paul sometimes just depressed to the point of death. But Psalm 88 is one of two Psalms. You know, we have these laments and by far they dominate uh, the 150 Psalms we have in our Bible. Most laments, for instance, like Psalm 13, where David is just unloading on God. You've forgotten me. Where are you? you know, you're killing me here, God. Right. But in verse six, it resolves. It's kind of like a suspension in music. And it resolves in verse six where he goes, but I will 
I will rejoice in you and I will sing of your unfailing love. I will trust you. And so it resolves. Mm -hmm. However, there are two Psalms that never resolve. One of them is Psalm 88. Let me read you an excerpt. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead in the darkest depths. He says to God, you have taken me from my closest friends. You have made me repulsive to them. And then he closes with this. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Now darkness is my closest friend. Hmm. And so I wrote a, an entire blog entitled, Should Christians Ever Struggle with Depression? And I said, the short answer is yes. The long answer, yes. Hmm. <laughs> Let me read you a quote. Quote. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed, distributed to the whole human family, there would be but one cheerful face on earth, I think. Whether I shall be better, I don't know. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. So there are great heroes uh, of the faith. Uh, I've already mentioned several in scripture. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers, uh, the missionary, David Brainerd. You could go on and on and find people who have suffered from severe depression. So what I tell people who are suffering from this level of depression, as I said, do you know what it means? you suffering from this? And they'll say, no, what does it mean? I'll go, it means you're perfectly normal. Hmm. And all of a sudden you see at least part of the weight come off their shoulders because you feel so defective, so ashamed, you know, so discarded so much that the world would be better off. My family would be better off. And once they know that they're absolutely normal and that there's help and hope and abundance, it sort of changes everything. Yeah. It goes back to what you said earlier, that quote about I feel like I'm drowning and everybody else is breathing. Yes. And, and then, you know, no, no, it, it just looks like it. Lots of people are drowning. This is normal. Let me give you a good um, resource for this to help understand. Yeah. Uh, those with uh, this level of depression and offer some helps as well. There's a guy named uh, Edward Welch, and I'll, I'll send this to you as well. Um, he got his PhD in uh, biblical counseling, and he is the professor of practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's not simply an academic. Um, he gets it. Hmm. And so he wrote this book called Depression, A Stubborn darkness. And he has a biblical worldview, so he's going to bring um, uh, God's word into it. But uh, I read it. It's outstanding. And I have several books I could recommend, but you know how that goes. <laughs> you can get too many and not read any of them. Yeah, sure. But this one by Edward Welch, Depression, A Stubborn Darkness. So we will, of course, 
point people to these resources you're mentioning. Um, you, if you're a youth minister and you're listening, you don't know you don't know how to deal with this. You're not alone either, man. Like the many many people don't know how to deal with it, and we can help you. We can get you help. We can point you to resources. I know you can. Uh, I don't know how many people you really want following you on Facebook, Nick, but like you can go find <laughs> Nick on Facebook. We will, it's fine. We will connect to his blog. It, it's worth your time. I promise just to see the, the lighter side of Nick Watts on, on Facebook, but we will, we will do that. This, this is really helpful. I think it sets the stage. This whole conversation sets the stage for where we're going with that next episode when we yep. really dive into the suicide and, um, and, and helping people with that specific um, issue that's so related to depression, obviously. So, man, thank you for doing that. Thank you for just all of it, bro. Thanks for the transparency, the honesty. The, oh, sure, sure. The and 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 the expertise um, as as someone that's walked through it in, in the different ways, man. That's there is no doubt in my mind this is going to help people. And I, I hope so. And some of that's just because you're. I've I've been watching you help people um, for so many years. So. Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, uh, guys, if you're listening, share this with somebody that needs to hear it. Um, share this episode and uh, let's, let's keep this discussion going uh, as we continue. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Lance. Thank you so much.